This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Ross Kenyon, lead strategist with the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me Anthony Mint, chef, restaurateur, activist, co-founder of Mission Chinese Food, uh, the perennial and now the perennial has turned, it kind of uh, evolved into a nonprofit called the Perennial Farming Initiative. And Anthony just won the Basque Culinary World Prize, which is a gigantic deal. Thanks for being here with us, Anthony, and congratulations. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for everything you guys are doing, too. Yeah, uh, our pleasure. Well, Anthony, can you tell us a bit about the Basque Culinary World Prize? What is it? How is it selected? What are they rewarding you for? And what do they expect of you moving forward? Uh, so it's a prize initiated by the Basque government, um, which, you know, for those of you not familiar, the Basque region in Spain um, probably is home to like several of the best chefs in the world. And so the government created this prize to kind of recognize the transformative power of gastronomy. Um, that's like, I think the, the term that they use or the phrasing. And so it's rewarding chefs who are doing great work outside the kitchen. And so I think it's only been around for a couple of years. Uh, and so it's relatively new and the jury of the chefs who decide are, you know, among the best chefs in the world, Massimo Bottura, you know, Dominique Gren, Juan Roca, Andoni, Adoriz, you know, a bunch more, but like really big names, uh, like a, a lot of Michelin stars and a, and a lot of people kind of on the top hundred restaurants in the world list. Yeah, that's that's a very big deal. And what does the the prize carry with it? And I, I know there's some sort of monetary grant. Are you applying that towards your work in trying to transform food systems and restaurants into being more regenerative in nature? Yeah, for sure. So the, the prize is 100,000 euros, which, you know, we haven't received yet, but hopefully some in the next few months or year, but uh, the the prize is allowed to be distributed to a nonprofit or two of the of the winners choosing. And so, you know, we've we've been doing nonprofit work um, for the past few years to get restaurants to become part of the solution to climate change. And so so that's gonna fold right in and you know we can talk about it later, but we're working on a program with the state of California that I think is really promising. And so hopefully that money will help kind of like really uh, expand our outreach efforts and get more restaurants involved with this movement. That's great and, and so important and, and a topic that I wish we covered more and perhaps we just should be more diligent about because about a year ago, we went to a couple events that were hosted at your restaurant, The Perennial in San Francisco, which uses quite a few products, food products that are grown or produced in regenerative fashion. So there's lots of grass-fed beef. I drank beer that was made out of Kernza, which is a perennial grass, uh, as opposed to the annuals that are used right now, typically. I, I thought it was a very cool experience, definitely unique. I'm not sure that there was many people doing what you were doing. So it struck me as innovative when I was there. And this seems like something that you're trying to lead and get other restaurants to do. Have you seen much change in your time since you've started trying to encourage restaurants to become regenerative? Well, 
Our background actually in restaurants starts like way before that with Mission Chinese, which is kind of just a a weird party Chinese restaurant, uh, for lack of a better description. Uh, we've always had a charitable agenda there, and so we've like helped the local food bank raise over a million meals, and so we've never kind of had this food systems orientation. And then, I guess seven years ago, we had a daughter and started thinking more about food and climate change. And really learned about regenerative agriculture and the potential for healthy soil to kind of be a major part of the solution. And so we opened the perennial, you know, with the hopes of like spreading that message and really walking the walk. And so, you know, as you mentioned, we were, we had a whole animal butchery program from this carbon ranch that was like a pilot or is a pilot, like one of the first pilot ranches in the marine carbon project. And we were, you know, baking artisanal sourdough. Uh, made with Kernza. And, you know, part of the goal was like, let's make this stuff the the Tesla of food and get people excited and to pay a premium for these things and to spur adoption. And I guess what we realized after some time, you know, more or less on a daily basis, people would ask us like, this is amazing. Like, so what can I do? And really, we started to realize that it was hard for people to source that way. Like there's no supply of those goods or even just like common sustainable goods, like food that's grown organically. You know, as someone told me at one point, organic represents less than 2% of acres of farmland in the U.S. or around the world. And in California, it's 3%. And so it started to feel like, geez, if we just keep kind of pushing demand, you know, at best, this kind of work would ever result in like a two, you know, kind of a similar amount of adoption as organic. And that's just not the kind of pace that, you know, global warming needs to be addressed at. Mm. So it sounds like you started with a simpler private sector approach of having a restaurant that was, you know, direct to consumer. And then as time has gone on, you sort of changed to a more policy orientation. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, whether it's policy or kind of like systems change uh, through the private sector. but sort of like realizing that just walking the walk and hoping people would also start following suit it just felt like way too slow (laughs) yeah and beyond the procurement problems which does sound like a headache and quite bespoke and doesn't doesn't sound easy so i can understand the hassle there and i think i don't know sometimes i have a lot of faith in consumers being able to voice their opinions and vote with their dollar and all of that but then there's plenty of decisions I make in my personal life that are quite lazy and I, I don't care. And I feel like I care more than the average person. So if I care more than the average person and still am not very good at it, I, I could see why that might cause some impatience with that approach. Yeah. And it's not even really like about patience, but so the perennial was established as a B Corp. And so, you know, as we were doing that, it struck me that one of the kind of defining qualities of a B Corp is simply that it is allowed to devote a portion of profits towards like, you know, social good or something like that. And so that, I mean, that's just like pretty poignant that a corp, (laughs) like a regular corporation, which is almost all the business in the US is not even allowed to devote money to social good, you know, otherwise they would get sued by shareholders or what have you. And so like, you know, it's really clear that it becomes hard for like the normal business to really create a lot of systems change because they're working within pretty finite parameters of like profitability. 
Yeah, that that fiduciary responsibility angle is a challenging one to get around. And I know shareholders can be persnickety about that and it's their legal right to do so. But yeah, I understand that's that's tough. So, so then I know you've been working quite a lot with at the California state level on soil health and soil carbon issues. Has that been more I don't know, I don't want to say satisfying, but do you feel like you've made some good progress there? Yeah, so California is really amazing to me because it's the world's fifth largest economy. It's pledged to go carbon neutral by 2045, you know, and that doesn't mean just like energy and stuff. It's economy wide. Uh, and I think it was just joined by New York also. And so it feels like there's real change happening. California has had, uh, as your listeners know, you know, a cap and trade market for a while, uh, the greenhouse gas reduction fund. And on the soil carbon front, you know, to my knowledge, it's like the only state that's like really got subsidies for carbon farming basically um, and so for years it's had a healthy soils program you know which has a range of funding from like seven and a half to five million or so and then this year the incoming governor Gavin Newsom increased it to 28 million so that's pretty exciting um, but nevertheless that 28 million represents only like you know two percent of the total greenhouse gas reduction fund and so as you know soil carbon enthusiasts, you know, I think we probably believe that it represents like maybe half of the, you know, solution set or whatever. And so that it only gets like 2% of the funding from the most progressive state should just be a signal that we all need to focus on it more. Um, but what's exciting with California is that as part of their ambitions to be carbon neutral, they're, they were open to exploring sort of like a private sector, public sector collaboration. So we're working on a program that will launch in January called Restore California. And, you know, it's basically a way to create additional funding for the same kind of carbon farming work as the Healthy Soils Program. Interesting. I've, I think I've seen other states start to emulate the Healthy Soils Initiative of California. I think I saw New Mexico recently had done something similar, and there must be others in the works, too. Have you noticed any others? Uh, yeah, I'm like on a Google group or some thread where people are really tracking it. And, and I think there's like healthy soils legislation of some form or other in like 21 states. But I don't know that they're necessarily as uh, like, you know, uh, basically financial subsidies for for conservation and carbon farming practices driven. Uh, like I think, I think there's financial components, but I think the healthy soils program is like, you know, pretty explicit. Like it's, you know, a comet assessment is like part of that application process and it's like pretty explicitly linked to carbon reduction mm, okay that's that's good to know i need to, to look more into some of the details of these various yeah tracking i mean that's that's sort of the difficulty of federalism right with 50 states it's hard to keep up with all the developments that are happening at those state levels but california definitely has a reputation and it's theirs to lose at this point they they've long been considered a leader in this space so it isn't surprising and lucky for you that you I've been there for a long time and uh, are working with them to help get this uh, working correctly. So you see this transformation then not really happening as much at the restaurant level, but you see it more on the production side of the supply chain? Well, I mean, so from our lessons at the perennial, like it's it's hard to source well and it's hard to expect people to kind of like reinvent their business models, especially when most consumers are a little bit disconnected from farming. And so it's kind of like, you know, hard to even communicate these somewhat nuanced like benefits and food and climate in general is like a little bit abstract for a lot of people. And so 
I don't necessarily see it as like at the production level. I think the end goal is to change land management for public benefit. But I think we're sort of envisioning restaurants here as a pathway for consumers to fund that transition um, in the same way that kind of in the transition from you know fossil fuels and uh, coal and different things to renewable energy communities have created community choice aggregation i guess where like you know an individual may not be able to put a solar panel on their roof but they can very easily pay like ten dollars more per month on a utilities bill and so i think we're trying to kind of envision a system where in order to transition from non-renewable farming to renewable farming consumers can pay a few cents per meal at a restaurant hmm okay so yeah there's multiple multiple prongs that you have going trying to achieve some of these results well that sounds good I, I hope you're wildly successful at this and i didn't have a chance to eat at mission chinese food sadly but you think you'll stay around in the restaurant business or are you switching to a more permanent nonprofit sort of role um well at the moment i'm at, at mission chinese two days a week and i love it there it's kind of like a you know pirate ship so it's fun and i, I don't think i'll ever totally be out of it, especially because I, I live like a block from the restaurant. So anytime something goes wrong, I'm, I'm definitely going to be the first one that gets called. But I mean, as this work with the state it moves forward, and especially since there seems to be like an opportunity in other states to create similar programs, you know, I think definitely my focus and excitement is like on trying to scale, I guess, like restaurants becoming part of a renewable food system. Cool. Yeah. I, uh, well, I definitely need to go there next time I'm in San Francisco and I'll make a point of, of doing so. And I would like to see restaurants, uh, leading in this capacity. Also recognize there's probably a fair amount of policy work that needs to be done for this to even work. Um, at least at those levels that, that number you gave about organic, uh, acreage. I get it. I get it. That that hits me hard. It's it's a disappointing figure. I I sort of would have imagined it greater than that. So I could see why you've gone the route that you have. In terms of policy work, the the interesting thing with this program is that it's a voluntary program, and so it's not like legislation. So really, any any city, any state could create a similar program, and really, what it's doing is just kind of trying to give consumers a way to effectively vote with their dollar, as as you kind of alluded to earlier. Like at the moment, you could imagine if you're sourcing well from a farm or something, you know, the, the dollar that you spend gets the farmer an extra, you know, 10 cents. Maybe if you, if you weren't buying it, they would have sold it to someone else for 90 cents or something. But at a restaurant, that dollar spent, you know, through cost of goods, like translates into like a three or $4 menu item. And then after like tax and tip, it's like five or six dollars maybe or whatever. And so like that six dollars from the consumer is really only getting a farmer like 10 cents. And so this is kind of a way where like 10 cents from a consumer goes directly towards 10 cents, you know, going to the farmer. And so that kind of like just creating a more direct pathway for that change to happen. Yeah, I remember when I saw that start to take off. I saw that you got blasted uh, by like, like conservative talk radio, which baffled me because the the program is opt in. Yet I, I saw bad press about it, and I was very confused by it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry you had to go through that. I don't know what what's so controversial about it being opt in. That should please conservatives just fine. Yeah, I mean, like a, an alternate way to look at it would be: imagine if like there was a fuel additive right now, 
and you could just like put a couple drops of it per gallon and it would cost like five cents per gallon, but somehow it could make burning gasoline have no emissions. And in fact, it actually like took emissions out of the atmosphere. You know, if that existed, like Exxon would be like funding that or the public would gladly like pay five cents per gallon to like solve the problem. But I feel like the food system and soil and farmland everywhere is actually offering that opportunity to the world, but we're not really like, we're not seizing that opportunity. Yeah, I'm still not exactly sure why that is, but we're so deep in that carbon removal, regenerative ag bubble that it's sort of hard to see, but it does seem very intuitive to to you and I, at least. Well, so, I mean, hopefully, you know, the state of California and other states can represent basically like tons of demand you know whether it's on nori or other soil carbon markets in the future well anthony thanks for for being on the show uh if someone wanted to keep up with what you're doing uh where should they look um a lot of our work is at uh, perennialfarming.org okay cool or they can pop into mission chinese food on one of the two days that you're working or they can cause a scene and then you can be summoned there exactly yeah (laughs) Okay. So one of the two listeners, whatever you feel like. Well, thanks so much. And congratulations again, Anthony. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thank you. If you like the show, uh, please share it with your friends. Please rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot to get the word out about regenerative agriculture, soil health, carbon farming, all the things that we like that you know by this point. Please help us spread the word and help the show grow. So thank you so much for listening.